You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn this morning to the first letter of Peter. In a way, you may be expecting that we would be on to chapter 8 of the book of Revelation, but uh, because history has deemed that the words of our text would be a fitting theme for this year's family visitations, the words of 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. So we interrupt our series on Revelation to turn our attention to this part of God's Word. In that connection, let us begin. We'll read from the first two verses and then we'll jump to verse 13 of chapter 1 and on until chapter 2, verse 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Then we turn to verse 13 of that chapter. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have been or have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. 
And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And then begins our text, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, I have a book in my library with the interesting title, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. It's written by a former professor of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia called C. John Miller. And why is this particular book interesting, not just because of its title? Well, primarily because once a church becomes established, there is an almost natural tendency for it to become preoccupied with itself. All the attention, it seems, gets focused on its members, its doctrines, its activities, and its internal life. And along with this, there is this tendency to build walls around the church in order to protect it and its members from the outside world. So what do we get after a while but a community that looks increasingly inward, that cares about and does things almost purely for itself? It's all about self-promotion, self-protection. Now, in a way that is understandable, after all, the world in which we live is an evil place. And it's becoming increasingly more so. The other day I was reading, and maybe you read it as well, in the National Post about what's happening in England. It's becoming, they call it, the land of yobs. Y-O-B-S. Which means a land filled with people who blight the landscape with loutishness, rowdyism, littering, and all manner of antisocial behavior. Vulnerable people get picked on, tormented, terrorized by young people who are out of control. Public drunkenness, street fights, vandalism, aggressive driving is becoming the new normal. And of course, it has to be said, to be honest, we don't have to look across the pond to England to see this. 
Just look around in Vancouver after a Canucks game, and you'll also see no shortage of disorderly, repulsive behavior. So in a way, you can say it's no wonder that the church and its people build walls. Who doesn't want to insulate oneself and one's loved ones from what is happening in an ever-increasingly lawless world? And yet, building walls is not without cost. Churches that do so often become excessively self-absorbed and self-centered. Little issues have a way of becoming magnified. Such churches become good at majoring in minors. They lose their vision. They no longer see the bigger picture. They become sick. And so what's the answer? Well, I think it it relies in, in adopting a different model. A good, wholesome, biblical model. It consists of developing a good, healthy, inner church life and at the same time adopting a good, aggressive, outward focus. Or if you like, it's like a good hockey team. Such a team combines a strong defense with a potent offense. And beloved, such an approach is not taken from the playbook of the NHL. No, it comes from the playbook of the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, knows how to promote and operate a healthy church. And we see that once again also as we turn to our text of this morning. And I preach to you on the theme, Peter charges God's elect exiles to embrace, to broadcast, and to live up to their new identity. Well, beloved, the Apostle Peter writes his first letter, and almost immediately you can catch the tone. For chapter 1 makes it clear that he is writing primarily to strangers or exiles. In other words, these are people who have no home. And that's borne out by another word used in verse 1, the word scattered. It would appear that Peter is writing to believers who have been forced out of their homes, fired from their jobs, and expelled from their towns and villages. They're a bunch of refugees. And that means, too, that his readers have every reason to feel bad about themselves and about their particular situation. If you're in such a situation, it doesn't take very long, and you may end up considering yourself a victim, a loser, a good-for-nothing. When the whole world is on your case, it's hard to keep your head above water. And yet, you know, that's precisely what Peter sets out to do. In spite of their terrible circumstances, he he wants to make clear, crystal clear to these believers that all is not lost. They're not just a bunch of spiritual losers. Now, already back in verse 2 of chapter 1, he made that clear. For there he says to those exiled and scattered believers that they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
to the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. In other words, the world may hate them. But be assured that God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit love them. And look out for them. Yes, and that particular theme and message is also stressed in our text of this morning. For there, Peter says that their rejection is really no surprise. For was their Lord and Savior himself not rejected? Was he not dismissed by men? Did the builders not reject him? Did he not cause men to stumble Was he not too among the exile? But nevertheless, in spite of what happened to him, he was elevated. And he became the capstone. But now the same kind of promotion happens to them, to these believers. The world rejects them, but as far as God is concerned, Peter writes, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Talk about compliments and tributes. Peter piles the one upon the other. He turns it into a heap of praise. Sometimes we may get complimented, right? Sometimes. Someone may say to you, you're a fine person, or an honest fellow, or a reliable lady. But yet I dare say, rarely do people pile on the compliments. When was the last time that someone called you smart, good-looking, honest, carrying a nice, all-in-one breath? Oh, and if they did, then you probably reacted with something like, okay, what do you want? Because you would automatically interpret a lot of compliments as a buttering up kind of operation. But that's not what God does here through Peter. He's not just dispensing empty compliments. Now, he wants to make it crystal clear how he sees them. And how does he see them? Well, first, he says he sees them as a priestly holy people. Take note of the expressions, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's Old Testament talk and imagery. It harkens back to the days of the exodus to Israel at Mount Sinai, You may remember that at that time God made a precious covenant with that nation of vagabonds, upstarts, and rebels. And he adopted them by saying, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Believe it or not. And then he added these words, and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, of course, Israel never lived up to that calling. The pages of the Old Testament are sprinkled liberally, not with obedient service, but with willful and frequent rebellion. But still, God did not give up 
on this stubborn people. He remained faithful to his promises. He, he doggedly kept his commitments. And so much so that he even sent his son, Jesus Christ, to call these people back, to rescue them, to restore them, to save them. And not even that only, but also to augment and to expand them. For in Peter's day, it are not just the Jewish believers who are being built into a spiritual and priestly house. Gentile believers too are being included. Christ Jesus is gathering the nations to himself by the power of his spirit. He's calling his children from everywhere. And then he's calling them as priests. Calling them to be holy as he is holy. And so far from these people being a bunch of religious misfits and spiritual oddballs, God has claimed them and called them to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But yet that's not all, for look, there is a second point that Peter wants to make, and he does that by calling them as well a chosen people, a people belonging to God, verse 9. If you are a refugee, you soon become convinced that no one wants you, no one loves you, and no one will defend you. You are on your own. But you know that's not true if you're a believer. Because ultimately, and that's the bottom line, believers belong to the chosen of God. They are on the receiving end of his electing love. They are his chosen possession. And you know, that too is a miracle of God's grace. It's utterly amazing how our God takes a holy people who have become unholy and makes them holy again in Christ and by the Spirit. And at the same time, it is utterly amazing how God takes people who are rebels, upstarts, and sinners and turns them into his adopted children and welcomes them into his family. Peter reminds us in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Echoes of the book of Hosea, right? That minor prophet had a daughter and was told to call her Lo-Ruchama, not loved. Imagine you're calling your daughter by that name. He received another daughter and was told to call her Lo-Ami, or Am I? Not my people. Hosea's children were billboards. They were billboards telling Israel what God thought about their 
idolatry, and its consequences. And now, beloved, in our text, here comes Peter, and and he declares, really, a, a better day has come. Jesus Christ has intervened and has made not just Jews and Gentiles, he's made them both into Ruchama, loved, and army, my people. So that's now what they are. And that's now what all of you are. If you're in Christ, you belong to God's royal priesthood and are a part, an integral part of his chosen nation. You may not have any kind of status with men, but be assured you have great and glorious status with God. Now take that and embrace it. Don't let what people say to you or about you shape your self-image. Do not listen to them. Listen to God. In spite of life's often dire and difficult circumstances, keep your head up. You're special, even super special. In the eyes of the Lord God Almighty, But then, beloved, you may also have noticed that Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't convey all of these wonderful truths and compliments to his fellow believers and leave it at that. It's not his aim to swell their pride, to inflate their egos, or to make them conceited. This is not an exercise in adulation. Peter says to us that once we are hooked into an awareness of our real status in Christ... We also need to work with it, to do something with it. And what do we need to do? Well, in verse 9, he uses one verb, and it's the verb declare. That you may declare the praises of him who called you into his wonderful light. In other words, that means that as as priests and, and as chosen people, we have a calling. We have a task. And it's a calling that's summarized and encapsulated in that one word, declare. Or in that phrase, declare the praises. Now, what does that mean? Perhaps first we should remind ourselves what it does not mean. It does not mean keeping your mouths shut when it comes to the great things that God has done for you. It does not mean that we should speak only about these things to family members and believing friends or with the people that we are comfortable with. And neither does it mean that we should talk about these things purely and solely to ourselves. Kind of a self-talk. Now the word declare is a public word. It comes from the Old Testament where God's people were urged by God repeatedly to proclaim His praise. 
He says about his priestly and chosen people that they are a people in Isaiah 43. I formed for myself that, that you may proclaim my praise. And so to declare means to praise, to proclaim, to promote, to shout about our God. That's our calling. It's God's people. And you can't escape it, beloved. And neither can you make excuses for it. All of us need to acknowledge that if we are not looking for the ways and opportunities to praise and magnify the Lord, we are being negligent when it comes to our calling. We need to find ways to tell others about our most wonderful, gracious, merciful God who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And to neglect that, to ignore that, is fundamentally a denial of what God has done for you and I. And even more than that, it places us in mortal danger. Do you not remember the words of the Apostle John? No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. But then, beloved Eve, as God's priests and chosen ones, we have a calling to talk right. We also, and you can see that in the last verses, we have a calling as well to live right. How should we live? Two things. Peter says, as abstainers and as examples. You notice, first Peter stresses the abstaining part when he implores his his readers, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Now that's worthy of another look. Look closely at the words here. Note, Note the passion that Peter uses. Dear friends, I urge you, I implore you, And that's his way of saying, what what I'm not telling you isn't incidental, it's not optional, it's not minor. You need to get this. And notice the title, Alien and Strangers. That's really what we are as Christians. When it comes to this world, we, we will always be out of sorts, out of steps, and out of sync with it. If your allegiance is to Jesus Christ, you will never, ever be entirely and completely at home in this world. And notice the context of the world. And that's not a reference to the beautiful world in which we live, but that's a reference to what man has done to this world by filling it with violence and immorality and drunkenness and depravity. And notice in this verse, Peter stresses the duty, abstain. From sinful desires. And what are sinful desires? Well, look elsewhere in the letter. Chapter 2, verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. The list goes on and on. 
And why? Because these things wage war against your souls. They don't just titillate your fancy. They don't just perk your interest. No, they're your enemies. They want to destroy you. Undo you. And so he says, abstain from these things. But abstain. Now there is, I dare say, a word that not too many people like. We prefer to indulge. And unfortunately, we often do. How often do we not use our money or credit to indulge ourselves? Be it food, trips, good times, parties, events. We don't want to miss out. And indeed, let me ask you, when was the last time that you abstained from anything? When was the last time that you said no to a movie filled with sex and violence? When was the last time that you said no to a beer too many? When was the last time that you said no to a dangerous relationship? When was the last time that you said no to trashing someone else's reputation? Dare to say no to evil. That's Peter's point. Be abstainers. When it comes to all these things. And at the same time, look at the positive. Be examples of all that's good. You notice verse 12 in that connection, Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. In Peter's day, there were a lot of false rumors about this so-called new Christian sect or cult or religion. And those rumors included the fact that these Christians really are nothing more than a bunch of political revolutionaries and radicals, or else they're a bunch of cannibals. But the Apostle Peter says, never mind. You can win them over. You can change their minds. You can change the words. You can do it, my friends, by means of holy, godly living. In other words, they will, by the kind of lives that you live, see that you are not what people make you out to be. And as a matter of fact, by living good lives, you will not only change their minds, but you'll also win the praise of God. When judgment day comes, the pagans will stand up and they'll praise you, and they'll praise your God. Now that's quite something. And what's also quite something is that many believers 
took up Peter's challenge. You know, one of the the fundamental reasons why the Christian church grew so fast in those early centuries was because of the kind of lives that the children of God were living. They're not capitulating to the world. They're not trying to imitate all the worldly standards. They're not trying to go along with the crowd all the time. They start to do God's will. And so that was a challenge then, it's a challenge still today. And it would even be good for us to examine our lives. The kind of lives that you and I are living today. Are there any pagans? There are lots of pagans around, but are there any pagans that you know that will one day be singing your praises before the throne of God? Are there any neighbors who will one day be thanking God for your care and your compassion, your understanding and your support? Are there any co-workers who will one day say to God what an inspiration you were to them in their workplace? Are there any customers who will thank God for making you such a good businessman? Beloved, as we enter a a new season of Bible study, of catechism instruction, of family and single visitation, you can see we have the challenges before us. Rejoicing and marveling in the fact that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Let us pray and work based on the redeeming work of Christ and by the power of His Spirit, so that we may be enabled to declare His praises, to abstain from all evil, and to live such good lives that even the pagans sing our praises before God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.